Hey, if you would, for just a minute, for one minute here, if you could take out this yellow sheet from your Family News Bulletin. If you've not filled this out, please do so right now. Just take one minute uh, and fill that out and just pass it to the end of your aisle. We really appreciate it. We're, we have a new system in the office, and we're, we're trying to get everything and make sure we have all the, the information updated. So just take one minute. Just take a quick minute here and fill that out. And while you're filling that one out, if you haven't done it already, um, tonight we are going to have a, a movie night, an outdoor movie. I love these things. And I was saying earlier, as we were welcoming people, one of the reasons I love it is not because we watch, you know, the most incredible movies in the world. It's Muppet, the Muppet movie, the, the most recent one, and then Princess Bride, which is about 20 years old. <clears throat> Both are just fun movies. But um, fellowship, it's a time to come and hang out and, and connect with people you may not know. You know, say, I want to get more connected here at Grace Chapel, get to know more people. You know, people bring in their kids. We pull the trucks up or our cars up and pull our seats out and lay in the back of the truck or whatever and just kind of hang out, you know. Um, if you watch the movie, great. If you don't, you're still hanging out with people. Stay as long as you like. We're going to do two movies, but you can leave after the first one. You can leave after an hour. It doesn't really matter. It's just coming, eating popcorn, hanging out, and, um, and just fellowshipping with one another. So I'm going to take another 30 seconds or so and just fill those yellow sheets out. Um, and then Lisa and Kevin, is Kevin over there? There he is. Uh, Lisa and Kevin will collect them. When you're done, just kind of pass them over. Um, I'm going to begin. You guys can write and listen just at the same time for a, for a few seconds. So when we last saw Jonah, <clears throat> he was sitting on the beach covered in vomit. It says in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So we, last time we saw Jonah, he's sitting on the beach. He's covered with vomit. Um, and after he cleans himself up, God calls his prophet once again in chapter 3. Then the, Lord of the, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah son of, a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city and a visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When, the, when God saw what they did and how, uh, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So here we have it. Here we have it. 
God repeats in chapter 3 what he told Jonah to do in chapter 1. But this time, Jonah was a bit wiser, and he obeys God. He kind of, you know, he, he's been through all this, so he obeys God. Now, now I'm sure all the fears and all the doubts and all the frustrations that he felt about going to Nineveh the first time were still there. But this time, he doesn't let his emotions dictate his actions. He doesn't allow his emotions to dictate his actions. Now, before we move on, I, I want to make one quick point. There are many of you here that God has called. God has called you to do something in the past. And because of your fear and because of, you know, maybe you just got a little overwhelmed or it's fear and doubt more than anything. Fear breeds doubt. And so God maybe called you to do something and you, you knew it was the Lord, but then that fear came in and, and then doubt started creeping into your mind and you're saying to yourself, was it really God talking to me? Or maybe I was talking to myself. Maybe it was a, a bad piece of food that I ate or something. And so because of fear and doubt, you did not do what the Lord has called you to do. You let your emotions dictate your actions and now you're living with regret. You're living with regret. What I love about Jonah chapter 3 is that God gives this imperfect prophet a second chance. We have a God of second chances. And if God will give Jonah a second chance, then it means he'll give you a second chance. He'll give me a second chance. Just because he called you once, maybe even years ago, and, and you kind of walked away and you're feeling that regret, doesn't mean that God is not going to do the same thing in your life. Or maybe he's going he's to weave the tapestry a little different because you're, maybe it's 10, 15 years ago. Maybe things have passed, but he still is going to use you in a very unique way. And what you need to do is say, God, I'm sorry for not listening. I'm sorry for, not, for, for allowing my emotions to dictate my actions. God, use me. God is a God of second chances. God wants to give you that second chance, just like he gave Jonah a second chance. So here's the thing. God is calling. Wipe off the vomit, if you will, and do it. Wipe off the vomit and make it happen. Move forward. Do the same thing that Jonah did here. Move forward. Do what God has called you to do. I'll tell you, there is nothing, there is nothing like a life-threatening experience on a boat and then spending three days inside the, the, the belly of a huge fish. And I say huge fish or whale, pick whatever you want. It says, it says great, great fish, so I'm sticking with great fish. But nothing like a threatening event uh, experience on a ship and then spending all that time in the belly of a huge fish to change a person's behavior. Do you notice what happens sometimes in our lives when, you know, we get ourselves into trouble and, and we cry out to God, God, if you get me out of this, I will do this and this and this and this. And you, and you do those kinds of things and it changes our behavior. But that's only half the story. That's only half the issue, changing our behavior. Because we don't change, if we don't change the core issue... If we don't change, if you and I don't change the core issue, if we don't look into our hearts, if we don't look into our attitudes, starting from the inside, then many times we don't change the behavior in our lives that got us there in the first place. If we don't change our hearts and our attitudes, we usually fall back into the same pattern of behavior over time. 
things go, you know, bad things aren't happening to you right now. And you really didn't change from the inside. It wasn't a core change from the heart. It wasn't a change of attitude. It was only a change of behavior. And over time, that same behavior comes back because it was it was extrinsic motivation. It wasn't intrinsic motivation. That's why you make all these pleas to God sometimes and all of a sudden you look back a few years and you haven't followed through. Maybe we're seeing a little of that in Jonah's life. So after Jonah is vomited up on the beach, he takes his long walk to Nineveh. He begins his long walk to Nineveh. And maybe it's only me here. Maybe it's only me. But if I had that kind of time on my way to the city of Nineveh, on top of that, not even to say if you had that much time inside the belly of that fish, wouldn't you be thinking about a really good message that you can give to the people? Because if they don't repent, they're going to get destroyed. So wouldn't you be thinking about a really, a really powerful message, a motivational message that you can give to the people? Something like, like Braveheart. You know what I'm saying? Something that, you know, if you had one chance, just one chance to repent. And tell God what you did wrong from that time to this. And you can see him taking some vomit out of the fish and wiping it on his face. You know what I mean? Get a little color going. He's got every, every prophet has to have a staff. Okay, it's in all the little books you see. And so he probably had a staff. And you want him to raise that staff with that, look, that, that vomit on his face. People go, oh man, that guy's really tough. And he would say, just one chance. And people would be going, yay, wow, that's amazing. You'd think that's what he would be working on. I said, I'd be working on. You know, pastors, if someone says, hey, if they tell you, yeah, you've got to get up there, like in Africa, they'll just say, uh, it, you know, you've got to preach in like a half hour, whatever the case may be. I'm not sitting twiddling my thumbs. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. Thinking a verse I can pick out, whatever. He has all this time. These people are going to be destroyed. You think it'd be this motivational thing because he has time to think about it. Instead, this is the message he preaches to Nineveh. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Thank you. And it's like, and he didn't even say thank you. Forty more. Remember two weeks ago I told you there were eight words of prophecy in the entire book of Jonah? There they are. Forty more days. You can see him just putting his hands in his pockets like, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That was it. This is the message that he comes up with after all that time. After all that time. Now, I don't think that that would rate up there with some of the best sermons of or best talks of all time. All right? I just don't think it even, even, even measures up at all. But we need to remember that Jonah hated Nineveh. And you need to start thinking to yourself, maybe the three days in the fish didn't change him as much as we thought it did. Maybe in chapter 2, I'm not saying he, was, he wasn't being sincere in chapter 2, because when you get thrown overboard and a giant, you know, and a big fish comes, swallows you up, and you're like, oh, you know, it's like, you know, there's a change of, there's a change of behavior. But maybe his time in the fish didn't change our prophet as much as we thought it was going to. Now, in Jonah's defense, this was the message that he was told to preach, this is the message the people of Nineveh really needed to hear. He got all the information there, okay? That's what they needed to hear. And so this is the message Jonah gives to them. And it must have, it, it, it must have, been, it must have worked because you see the response of the Ninevites is, is basically immediate and overwhelming. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, They believed God. Forty more days. You can just see him walking around. Hey, you, you, over here. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 
You know, 40 more days, and then it'll be overturned. He's walking around. And the immediate, it's immediate, and, and, and it's overwhelming. The people believed God. Now, this showed me something else when I was writing this sermon. What it showed me is, it is it, when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to speaking the Word of God, there are other motivational things you can do, but when it comes to speaking the Word of God, it is not the messenger, but the power of the message that transforms lives. It is not the messenger. It is the power of the message that transforms lives when it comes to God's word that, that, that changes people. It is the message. And everyone who preaches or teaches the word of God should remember that and make sure they keep their pride in check. It isn't about me. It isn't about the person who's teaching in the Bible study. It's about the word of God. That's what permeates a person's heart. That's what brings about change. Now, in the, for in the Ninevites, it, it could have been no more than the same thing that happened to the sailors on the ship where they believed God and they had a, a healthy fear of God. So the whole city has this healthy fear of God. They, they believe what, what, what Jonah is saying and they, just, and they have a healthy fear of God. But it could also be that they, they actually turn to God. The whole city turns to God. They, they, there's repentance. Either way, the Ninevites believed God and responded. The king was convicted and he calls everyone to repentance. They go through a process. They recognize their sin. Verses 5 through 9. This is what he says. Let everyone give up their evil ways. Let everyone give up their evil ways. He recognized that the whole city was living this way. He recognized there was evil and horror going on all around him. Let everyone give up their evil ways. So first he recognizes his sin. And then he expresses his sorrow for his behavior. He expresses sorrow. So first in verse 8, he recognizes. Then verses 5 through 9, he expresses sorrow. And then his sorrow is turned into, is transformed into action. There's action. His action, it's, it's basically, we confess our sin and God forgives us of our sin. And so they basically go into that, that process, confessing your sin. There's a sorrow and brokenness and a recognition of what they did wrong. And then their, their sorrow turns into action. And the action we find in verse 5, it says they, they fasted the whole city. The king said, we need to fast. So everyone began to fast. And they put on sackcloth and they sat in the dust and they wouldn't eat. They wouldn't drink. They were in that fast because they recognized. See, it's a pattern. It's, it's a path that each one of us needs to take a path of of repentance and forgiveness which leads to salvation that's what they did they recognize that what we see happening in this whole city is absolutely amazing it's an amazing thing jonah sees 120,000 people turn to god 120,000 people he's going around preaching telling them Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 120,000 people. He watches them turn to God. See, as we sit here this morning, I wonder if we believe that could happen in our midst. I, I truly wonder if, if, if this morning, if we believe that God could do the same thing in our community. Can God do the same thing? If we believe that God can do the same thing in our schools, in our neighborhoods, 
in our city. If God would do the same thing, one man walks around a city of 120,000 people who are his deadly enemies, and those people turn and come to God. They turn and they believe. They believe. It's incredible. And the question is, do we believe that God can do the same thing here at Grace Chapel? Our vision is to be a global community of Christ followers, awakening imagination, igniting passion, and unleashing purpose. That's the vision. We have an incarnational philosophy, which means when Jesus was here, how did he do ministry? It says he talked to Pharisees and Sadducees, the rich, the poor, the afflicted, government officials, tax collectors, prostitutes. He had the same message, but a different approach depending on who he was talking to. So an incarnational philosophy says that we need to follow the example of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus knew what was in a man. So he could go into any environment, any any sphere of influence, any culture, and he knew what was in a person's heart, and he could speak directly to the heart. We can't do that. We need to understand the culture into which we're speaking. But listen, God has called every single one of us to, 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 to bring his word, to bring his love to our sphere of influence. God has called every one of us to use the gifts and talents and abilities that we have to bring influence to, to those around us. And every single one of us has people around us who we can influence. You say, well, no, I don't. Yes, you do. Whether it's your house, whether it's your school, every single one of us has that. We also believe in our church that there's no secular and sacred. We believe there's no such thing as secular. In a biblical worldview, there is no secular. If it's not sinful, then it's... Absolute. Say it again. If it's not sinful, it's... Sacred. Exactly. Okay, if it's not sinful, it's sacred. That means when you go to Procter & Gamble tomorrow, when you go to your business, when you go to your lawn care company, whatever you particularly do, when you go to your home, whatever it is, it is not, you're not going into a secular environment once you leave this building. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're a righteous believer in Christ, you're bringing, you're, you are sacred. You're bringing that into your environment. There's no such thing as secular. If it's not sinful, it's exactly and that's what God is calling every single one of us to do. Whatever we do, we bring Christ into it. Therefore, every member, listen, every member is a minister. If we, if we take Jesus Christ into our sphere of influence. Every single member here, every person sitting in these chairs who knows Jesus Christ is a minister to your sphere of influence. Every single one. If we, if, we, if we take Christ into it, we are furthering the kingdom of God. If we bring Christ into it, we are furthering the kingdom of God. Everything we do at work, everything we do at school, everything we do on the field, everything we do at home is sacred. We are furthering the kingdom of God. Everyone has influence. And that means we need to use our time, our talents, and our treasures to further God's kingdom. To, to, to walk Jesus Christ, to bring the, the passion of Christ even further. Every single one of us, we need to use our time, we need to use our talents, we need to use our treasures. We belong to God. It is not, listen, reaching this community is not my sole responsibility. It's not my sole responsibility. You, don't, you, you, you all tithe and it allows me to work full time. But my job, my responsibility is to teach and to train and to equip you to do the work of ministry wherever you go once you leave this place. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12, 13, look it up, read it. 
It is my responsibility to equip you, to, to, to allow you to become the people that God has created you to be so that you and I together as a staff and the congregation can go out into what God has called us to do. It is not my sole responsibility. Then if that's true, why can't we see transformation in our schools and in our places of work? Why can't we see revival in our neighborhoods and in our city, in our community? Why can't we see that happening? It happened here. Jonah, an enemy of the Ninevites, goes in and says eight words and people are transformed. They believed God. See, we've been putting this together. We've been, we've been piecing things together, putting things in place for the last few years. Think about this. We have one of the best outreach facilities in Cincinnati and our Grace Impact Center. Over 2,000 people a week are coming into the Grace Impact Center. We can use that, that tool that we've put together. We can use the tool that God has given to us. We have one of the best marketplace ministries in the country here at Grace Chapel. We have one of the best marketplace ministries Anywhere in the world, right here at Grace Chapel, we can train people who go to work every single day how to be a, how to be a minister in the marketplace. We have the ability to do that. Our life groups, our family ministry, our, our, our men's ministry, our women's ministry have all gotten stronger. We have someone within the body who's going to help fund multiple positions in our youth and children's ministry. We are going to be able to put a full or part-time person on every high school campus, reaching out to every high school campus in our area. Everyone. God is putting all the pieces. This is not just, these are not individual ministries that we're just doing willy-nilly. There's a plan behind all of this. There's a specific plan to reach our community. Through the marketplace, through the school, through our homes, everywhere. We have specific plans in place for God. God is working through us and God is moving in us to allow us to do those things. We need to be ready. We need to be, and we need to be excited about it. So Jonah here sees change in the entire city. He sees a dramatic change in the entire city. But one of the most amazing parts of this entire story comes... At the end of chapter 3, in verse 10, where it says God had compassion on them. God had compassion on them. God, listen, God was under no obligation. He was under no obligation to show compassion. They deserved his judgment. God doesn't just decide, well, you know, those people are really annoying me now, so I'm going to wipe the whole city out. They get to a point where there's nothing good in the city where there's evil, the, 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 king, the king acknowledges this. Turn from your evil and violent ways. Maybe God will relent from his anger. God was under no obligation not to do what he said he was going to do. No obligation at all. God would have been justified in destroying this entire city. And like I said, even the king acknowledged that in chapter 3 in verse 8. He acknowledges it. See, the most amazing thing, and it doesn't matter what you got taught when you were in Sunday school and kindergarten all the way through, the most amazing thing about the book of Jonah is not that Jonah got eaten by a huge fish or a whale. That is not the most amazing thing about the book of Jonah. The most amazing thing is that 120,000 people repented and turned to God and God showed compassion and God forgave them. That's incredible. 
See, our problem is, as a church, and I mean all of, all of Christianity in many ways, our problem is that we've forgotten how to dream, to believe in the impossible. We've allowed disappointment and even apathy to create a spirit of spiritual mediocrity within the church. Spiritual me- and mediocrity, just want to wipe it off, take a shower. This spiritual mediocrity that's permeated the church. You actually believe and you think that you go to work at the main purpose for you to go to work every day is to collect a paycheck and maybe get, a, uh, get, get, a, get an advancement. You actually believe you are in high school or in junior high or in elementary school or in college. You actually believe that the reason you're, that you're, that your main purpose for being there is to get good grades and maybe get on a sports team so you get a scholarship so you can go on to college. You think that's your main purpose for being at school. There's nothing wrong with those things. But they are, there is something so much greater. There is such a greater purpose for your existence and why you are where you are right now in your life. There is a greater purpose in all of that. We need to believe that God wants to see lives transformed right here in our own community. You need to believe that God wants to see your coworkers change, their hearts change. In high school and junior high, you need to believe that God wants to, He wants to, and He's looking for someone to work through to transform your school. You need to believe that God wants to have, see everyone in your household come to know Him. Everyone, everyone come to know Him. We need to believe as a church that God wants to fill every single seat in this sanctuary, that he wants to fill every single seat in every sanctuary in Cincinnati with people who want to see their lives transformed. We, want to, we, we, we need to believe that. We need to understand. We need to start dreaming again that God can do these things. In the book of Jonah, we're learning that God would rather show compassion than judgment. That God would rather show compassion than judgment. And see, God wants to do miracles. He wants to do miracles. And I don't know about you, but I want to see miracles. I want to experience them. I've experienced miracles before in my life, and it's kind of addictive. You know what I'm saying? You want to do it a lot. I want it to keep happening. You need, you need to know that God wants to do miracles, that God wants you to experience 120,000 people turning and saying they believe God. They believe God. God wants to do miracles, and we need to be ready, and we need to want to see those miracles. God, If God simply wanted to have destroyed Nineveh, why would he send or punish Nineveh? Why send Jonah? He could have just destroyed the entire city. He could have just destroyed it. The things we see in the story of Jonah are only a shadow of what is to come in Jesus Christ. Only a, only a, sh- a glimpse. If God's desire is to, sh- is to teach us that he, sh- he wants to show compassion instead of judgment in the book of Jonah, how much more clearly are we seeing that in Jesus Christ? Whenever you read the Old Testament, here's what you need to say to yourself. How much more? Say that with me. How much more? Whenever you read the Old Testament, you say, how much more? Here's what's happened in the church in many cases. We're not under law. We're under grace. So how much less? How much more can I get away with? That's not what the book of Hebrews says. The book of Hebrews says, because we're believers, how much more do those who believe in Christ, how much more should we then who believe in Jesus, how much more? When you read the Old Testament, you see what he did through Jonah, you have to ask your question, how much more then will we see it through Jesus Christ? It's only a foreshadowing. It's only the beginning of what he's going to do through Jesus. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. 
it would, be, it would be so easy and safe for us to just pick on Jonah this morning and end it there and move on to chapter 4 and not ask him tough questions of ourselves. Some really difficult questions like, how are we involved in furthering? How am I, let's make it personal, how am I involved in furthering the kingdom of God and bring the kingdom of God forward? Here's another question. If you didn't go to church, if you didn't show up at church, would anyone know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ by how you live your life outside of the church? Could they convict you in a court of law of being a follower of Jesus Christ if they didn't see you coming to church? Would people know? Would people recognize that that's what you are, a follower of Jesus Christ? What you have to understand, my friends, is that we are in a war for the hearts and souls of people. The world has declared war and, and for the hearts and souls of, of individuals. We're in a battle. We need to understand we are in that battle. The world wants to turn Christianity into a lame religion, a weak religion, wants to turn the church into a social club, and wants to turn Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, into some domesticated house cat. If you remember the Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. Tumnus says to Lucy, remember, he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. Here's the problem. As Christians, we have became, become tame followers of Jesus Christ, and it's sad, and it's pathetic. We have become tame followers of Jesus Christ. We wonder why we feel, we feel no power in our faith. We wonder why we feel bored if you're a younger person in your faith. We as adults wonder why students, why, why our children, when they leave the church and go on to college, don't come back to the church. We're wondering, all the, we're wondering all these questions. We're wondering why we can't stand up for what we believe in, in the face of social pressure. It's because we've become domesticated. Because we, because we get threatened and we, and we fall back. We become intimidated. The world tells us what sexual immorality is and we whimper. And not only do we whimper, we go along with it. We go along. The world tells us when life begins and they define murder for us and we cower. We cower. The IRS thinks it can tell me what I can and cannot say from this stage. And if I go out, if I step, oh, if I step across that line, they're going to take, take away our nonprofit status. And I'm supposed to in some way be afraid. There's a law that says, that we're not allowed to expressly endorse or oppose candidates for political office. Well, listen, it's on the CD. I disagree with President Obama's views on many issues, and I disagree with his position on many issues. And I'm not going to vote for him, and I don't think some of you should vote for him. I just broke the law. I just broke the law, my friends. Someone can take that tape, that CD right now, send it to the IRS. Okay, because I just broke the law. And this is not a Republican and Democrat thing. Don't get me wrong. You know I don't stand up here all the time and talk about political things. I think it's almost a waste of time. I didn't like some of what President Bush did either. I'm just trying to break the law this morning. Okay? The IRS wants to somehow... Like, how many people lost their nonprofit status since 1954 when Lyndon Baines Johnson came up with this lame idea? From the Constitution until 1954, I was allowed to say anything I want from the pulpit about political things, endorse whoever I want to endorse. He, he's a whiner and didn't like what someone did in, some, in one of his political runs for office. 
And so he passes this law and doesn't have any discussion about it. Do you have any churches that have lost a nonprofit status since 1954? One. They lost a nonprofit status. They didn't lose their tax exemption. So what the heck's the difference? They can do nothing. What they're trying to do is intimidate us so I don't say anything from the pulpit. They push us back and we whimper and we cower. You know what? When the, when the IRS tells me to jump, I don't say how high. I say go pound salt. Okay? When Jesus tells me to jump, I say how high. If he tells me to get on my knees, I get on my knees. But I don't follow after some political party or some government. It's unconstitutional, number one. And number two, it doesn't matter because I'm going to say whatever I darn well please from this place whether they change or pass laws to say anything. We are being, in, we are being intimidated intellectually. They tell us how we all came to be here. They tell children in school that they evolved from some primordial ooze and then they wonder why our kids don't have good self-esteem. I'm the intellectual moron here. Someone help me. I, was not, I did not evolve from some lower life form. I was created by a higher life form. And that's the only life, that's the only person I have to respond to. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, it says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Here it is, my friends. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of us. He is the Lord. Jesus is calling. Who are you following? Whose voice are you following? I follow one voice. I'm not a rebel without a cause, but I'll be a rebel if I have a cause. I follow one voice, and that voice is Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Jesus is calling you. You. Don't think about the whole church as a whole and this whole Christianity. Jesus is calling you. Are you going to be like Jonah? Or are you going to follow him? Are you going to follow his voice? Jesus says, my sheep, they are my sheep, and my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. Who are we following? There's a song by Keith Green that I want to close with. And as, 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 you, as you hear this, see this video, and you hear it, I want you to listen to the words, and I want you to step back and ask yourself, where am I in my life right now? I want you to take a good, hard look at your life and your heart. We need to, listen, we need to ask ourselves, what has God called me to do? And am I answering that call? Let me say that again. What has God, God, God called me to do? What has God's word said to me? And am I following my leader? I want you to listen to this video, especially if you're younger made in like 1978 or 79. Just skip the clothing. Okay, you probably like it anyway because you're into that style. But just don't, don't get caught up in the clothing. Get caught up in the words. Listen to what he says. Don't you care? 